This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. All right, welcome back. This is Mike Smith and for Simi. The hot question today is, are you getting enough exercise? Participation says most Canadian adults are not. Research finds only 16% of adults get the recommended amount of moderate to vigorous activity. Nora Johnston from Participation was on the John McComb show this morning. She says it all starts with some simple steps. We just need to integrate physical activity into our day. So it could be things like using active transportation to get to and from work. Sure. Um, sure. You know, getting up and going for a walk during coffee instead of sitting during coffee. Um, small changes can make a big difference for people who aren't active. People who are already active, we're not really too worried about them. They're, they're already doing it. But if we can get more people to be a little bit more active, it'll make a significant difference. All right, Nora Johnston from Participation there talking to Sterling Fox, guest hosting the McComb Show this morning, saying you can take some stim- uh, simple steps to get more activity into your daily life. But this new survey says most Canadians still not doing it, just 16% of adults not getting enough exercise. So here's your hot question today. How much exercise do you get every day? Would you say you get less than 10 minutes or between 10 and 25 minutes, 25 to 40 minutes, or more than 40 minutes a day. Here's how you vote on that today, at CKNW on Twitter. Please give me a follow while you're there, at Mike Smith News on Twitter, S-M-Y-T-H, at Mike Smith News on Twitter. I'll retweet the hot question there. Phone me on the buzz line in this one today and tell me what you think. 604-331-BUZZ is the number, 604 604- Three three one two eight nine nine. Are Metro Vancouver bus drivers gonna walk? Maybe walk a picket line. They've issued seventy-two hours strike notice. Union leader Gavin McGarrigal says workers have demanded better breaks and wages for months. He says they've been ignored by the company. He spoke to Sterling Fox in the John McComb show this morning. Have a listen. Well, what you've seen is an increase in transit ridership from 2016 to 2018 of about 18%. But at the same time, you've seen overcrowded buses increase by 36%. Um, You don't have to go far, go to a UBC, uh, go to any of... uh, you know, the times at rush hour, and you'll see people lining up in the hundreds to get onto buses, and people are waiting two, three, four buses to get on a bus. And so our members are focused on serving the passengers, and they do the best they can to keep the schedule, but that's at their expense. Um, they don't have enough time to properly go to the washroom to have a bite to eat and, and just decompress after serving people. So that pressure has been building for years. And really, the transit planners just haven't uh, allocated uh, sufficient what we call recovery time to make sure that, um, you know, under most normal days and most normal circumstances, that that time is built in. Our members have said enough. Okay, as union leader Gavin McGarrigal, after bus drivers uh, issued 72-hour strike notice in Metro Vancouver, if they do walk, it would be the first transit strike in 18 years i'll tell you i remember the last one back in 2001 it dragged on for months it was pretty brutal let's check in with ian tostinson now ride sharing now for bc he's also president bc restaurant association ian thanks for coming on hey mike how you doing 
I'm doing great. Let's uh, put on your restaurant hat first of all here, Ian. And if there was a transit strike, what would it mean for like small businesses like restaurants and Metro? Well, a lot of uncertainty. So people that would whether you know maybe want to go out or stay downtown after work and go, you know what, can't do that because I have to find a ride home now because I don't know how I'm going to get there. That's a big problem. I think the bigger problem, I was thinking about it this morning, Mike, is uh, our, our workers. Is It's hard enough for them to get right now to uh, to get to restaurants right now, to get to their work, the jobs. Uh, this will just throw a complete chaos into it, like the early morning shifts and the late, the late night shifts. So um, it's not good. It's not good news. I, I don't quite remember 2001, but I was reading about it this morning. It was, you're right, it was chaos. It was like people are walking, riding bikes, carpooling. They were quite desperate to do that. And um, so I don't know, even if there's rotating strikes, um, that creates enough uncertainty. I think when people wake up in the morning and say, you know what, I can't afford to have that uncertainty, so they're going to start making uh, you know, arrangements probably pretty fast on Friday morning. I, I remember that strike in 2001, and, and the extraordinary thing about it was just how long it went on. It went on for four months. Can you imagine that? 124 days no. with no bus <laughs> service. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, I was wondering whether or not we were as reliant on public transit then as we are today. I mean, I think we're much more reliant on it today, but um, that's brutal, right? I mean, who would ever think would go on that long? Wow. Yeah, and it was really tough on people who obviously rely on public transit. And I thought it, I remember thinking at the time that it really disproportionately hurt certain groups of people. I mean, you know, people trying to get to work, poor people, disabled people, you know, uh, women trying to get home at night after work if they're working late. It was it was not a good thing, and it dragged on for months and months and months before the government finally stepped in. People were absolutely furious. I remember one day uh, George Puel, if you remember George Puel, mm. when, when he was yep. the head at TransLink, and people were so mad, somebody went and dumped a, a truckload of manure on his lawn, which I thought was disgusting, but it was just sort of showed you how furious people were it was it was not a pleasant situation now that said i remember if you were driving you know if you were commuting to work by car i remember a lot of people back then saying oh this is great because the traffic is lighter yeah that's true right <laughs> and you know that's <laughs> very true but i don't know if it's going to be the case this time i mean it was just about 1.2 million people that uh, ride uh, some form of transit in metro vancouver every day so you can imagine that. I mean, I know they're not going to shut the whole system down, but, you know, listening to the union leader um, is interesting. These aren't issues like we want 5% or 6%. These are really difficult issues to deal with, right? Breaks and mental stress. I mean, it would be terrible being a bus driver in the city. It's hard enough to drive as it is, but so I don't know. I don't think it doesn't sound like there's a, there's a real easy way out in this one. And so I guess the next observation is we need alternatives, right? One of the things that, one of the reasons that it dragged on for so long, I recall back in 2001, maybe this was one of the reasons, was the government was saving money on it because they weren't running a bus service. TransLink was saving money. And there was some speculation that, well, just let it go because we're saving money by not having to provide these services. Now, I certainly hope that that is not a factor in anyone's mind this time and that this thing is settled because I think a transit strike would be pretty ugly. Let me let me switch now to, like you said, alternatives. You're, you're also the head of ride-sharing now for BC. And do you think this is an example of the need for alternatives like ride-hailing? 
You know, I do. I was just talking to somebody about wouldn't it be great to launch Rideshare on Friday? That's not going to happen, but um, it certainly does. Um, you know, I mean, if you look at it from a person's point of view, when they're being held hostage to things they can't control, uh, ride-sharing will make that, give that alternative to that rider and, um, and, and that customer, that employee, you know, whatever the situation is. And so that's just, an, you know, I think versus 2001, um, I think these, those services now are more needed than ever. I mean, people are living further out than ever, especially since yeah. 2001. So there's all right. these different factors now. So I think that we need it. Um, I don't know that the uh, many governments, with the exception of Richard Stewart, is do, are doing us too many favors to get it going quickly. But I still think we're on track before Christmas. But uh, boy, I tell you, um, you know, you, it wouldn't be refreshing to have a politician stand up and talk about what's you know in the best interest of everybody's convenience versus there's sort of sometimes narrow, narrow political views on things. What, what was your point there about Richard Stewart? He's the mayor of Coquitlam. Well, sorry, yeah. Now, Richard is doing a great job at advocating, uh, you know, for rideshare and to have a licensing scheme across Metro Vancouver that's um, that's fair and equal and gets on with it, um, not this sort of one-off like Vancouver did when they charged $100 per car. Um, it's slowing down the process. Every every municipality wants to come up with a licensing scheme now to license rideshare cars in their municipalities. And it's just another layer of red tape and, and, and uh, time delay. Okay, I'm speaking to Ian Tostenson, ride-sharing now for BC. He's also the head of the BC Restaurant Association. I mean, you've also got cities like the city of Surrey and the mayor there, Doug McCallum, just threatening to keep ride-hailing companies out of the city, period, because he's so opposed to it. Yeah, how can you do that? I mean... You can't, right? You can't. Yeah, I know. 78% of the people in Surrey want ride-sharing. I mean, boy, if anybody needs it, it's Surrey. And he's... I, I don't know what era he's advocating in, but boy, I tell you, he's not in touch with his people. His people, right, in Surrey, it's it's very sad. Well, I, I think he's clearly aligned with the taxi companies in Surrey, which are a powerful political lobby there in the city. I think that's what it pretty much comes down to. What is the current status of, of ride-hailing in the province right now? When are, when are we going to get it? It looks like uh, two weeks. Uh, the the companies, so the big companies, Lyft and Uber, are expecting to receive uh, approval to operate uh, within about two weeks. So that'll be the big one. And then the next one has been going on is the recruitment um, on drivers. Uh, I got to be honest with you, the Class Four licensing scheme has caused uh, you know has caused some problems. It's not easy, especially in smaller communities, to get um, enough drivers. So. You're going to see initially the services launched in in Metro Vancouver, where there's much more of a pool of drivers, uh, and that's going to cause a lot of you know unfairness. I think for communities in the Okanagan and Victoria and on the island, that just uh, it's going yeah. to take them time to populate. If at all, they can do it. If things go well, when could you be able to click the app on your phone and call an Uber? Um, I'm going to call it Michael by the end of November. Uh, oh, I was okay. a little bit little bit sooner, but um, I know that they're really trying to line up these drivers quickly. So, I, I, you know, certainly before Christmas. I mean, the, the Premier promised a year ago we, we'd have it by Christmas, and so um, I'm going to call it for November 30th. Ian, thanks for coming on. Thanks, Mike. Have a great day. Is, same to you. Ian Tostenson, ride-sharing now for BC. He's president of the BC Restaurant Association, talking with the potential for a transit strike. He says it'd be brutal on small businesses that are relying on people uh, to get to work, especially the restaurant sector, if Metro Vancouver bus drivers 
went on strike. They have issued 72-hour strike notice. Did you know Tom Morello has also been raging against facial recognition software at music festivals? He is part of a campaign by artists called Ban Facial Recognition at Live Shows. Why would the promoters of a festival or a concert or a sporting event want to scan your face with a computer? Let's talk about that now with my guest, Takara Small. She is a technology expert and entrepreneur. She has written some great stuff on this. Takara, thank you very much for coming on. Thanks for having me. Okay, we've already seen some big concert promoters uh, fooling around with this facial recognition stuff. Live Nation and Ticketmaster, for example, both partnered up with this company, Blink Identity, on this. What's the deal with this? How does it work? Yeah, so this is just one of many companies that are operating facial recognition software that pretty much just scans attendees before they enter and when they leave stadiums or any type of music festival or event with the goal of providing up-to-date, up-to-the-minute information. Right. So I've heard Live Nation say, for example, that they want to use this technology to enhance your concert experience, maybe deliver your favorite beer or snack to your seat. Uh, What's it really all about? Yes. I mean, from the business perspective, I mean, this is a piece of technology that will allow them to identify and target, provide targeted ads and information to consumers and users. It's incredibly easy to use, and especially because this data will then live on and you can, business will be able to tap into this at any point in time that they want. Um, I think the dangers and some of the criticism based on using this type of technology is, first of all, it's passive. So what that means is that individuals really don't opt in or opt out into having their face scanned and this information being shared. It's not like when you're going online and perhaps there's a cookie on a website that says, okay, if you use this service, you're going to be opting in for us to track wherever you you go online and whatever you look at. A lot of the time people buy tickets and they don't necessarily know they're opting into this type of technology. The other point I'd say is the fact that we are living in a day and age, and I don't want to sound some type of conspiracy theorist or scare people, but we are living in a day and age where there are multiple data points that are collected over time. So there's security camera footage, there's cell phone information collected when you perhaps go to the mall and use public Wi-Fi. So there are all these different elements. There's, you know, information about your location data when you download certain apps. So there's all of this data that's being amassed and you don't necessarily have a say or know what's being done with it. So I think that's the criticism is that the average person doesn't always have the opportunity to opt out or to know how this technology is being used. It's to benefit maybe a company or a business and it maybe will enhance the experience, but you don't really know at the end of the day. Okay, so does it come down to money at the end of the day? This is a way to to make money. I mean, they can say, well, this is about enhancing your experience at a show or a sporting event, or mm. or uh, we want to do it for security. They've said that too, mm-hmm. safety and security. But is it really more about money, making money? Mm-hmm. Well, I think it does offer up opportunities to increase revenue. Um, if we're talking about security, I think it's important to note that Facial recognition technology often has a hard time um, truly and accurately understanding racial and gender differences. So if this is about security, 
And this technology isn't the greatest at understanding the difference between a dark-skinned woman um, and someone else, another dark-skinned woman, then it kind of defeats the purpose, right? I mean, mm. if it has a hard time understanding what any racial minorities look like, then the idea of security kind of loses some of its value. Um, while, you know, technology is always growing and learning, at this point in time, there are so many different questions that I think the average person would have where it, it, it's best to, to discuss it in a public way and make sure that attendees or anyone really has all the knowledge they need to opt in. Okay, there's been some heightened public awareness of this uh, recently. Uh, as I mentioned, Tom Morello off the top, very well-known artist. Yeah. He's, he's uh, got a big story on the Rolling Stone website on this today. He has started yeah. this campaign to push back against the use of this technology at, at music uh, festivals, and he's had some success. Like, I see there's some big festivals like the Coachella Festival, South by Southwest, have pledged that they will not use this technology at their events, but there's a lot of other festivals that have said they still might use it, like the Burning Man Festival, the iHeart I Radio Music Festival. What's going on there? Like some of these festivals saying, okay, we're, we hear the public concern, and others are saying, we don't care, we're, we're still going to go with it. Mm-hmm. Well, I think in this case with Tom Morell, like he has a lot of, uh, power as an artist. Yeah. And so I think, and also it's important to note that he was also supportive of a boycott as well against festivals that didn't opt out and refused to remove this type of technology. So I think what you're seeing is festivals watching, yeah, thinking, and I think reacting to what the public discourse is about this issue. Would those festivals have removed that technology if someone of his caliber and his fame hadn't said something, I don't know. So I think like most companies and most businesses, they will react and they will enact whatever policies they feel will help their business grow. And if there's a huge backlash, then it's not really in their favor. And so when you have places like Coachella and South by Southwest that are huge, they make millions and millions of dollars saying, okay, you know, this isn't worth it then maybe there's something to be said for having individuals with a little bit more of a, of a bigger online presence or celebrities or something like that speaking out. Because this it's interesting because there were two Calgary malls last year that used recognition technology to track shoppers. And it was only found out by accident. Just a, a consumer found out by accident because on one of, the, um, one of the online maps that you could use to navigate the space, a, a portal was left open. That's very interesting. And the other element of this is social media, right? Like, didn't Facebook get into some trouble over using a, a facial recognition software on their site? Um. Well, it, I don't. I don't know if they got if Facebook got into trouble about facial recognition technology. I can't really speak to that so much, but I do know that a lot of companies are looking, especially in Toronto. Um, looking there, I mean, I'm sure you're well aware of Sidewalk Labs. They're looking at how facial recognition technology can be used within a community setting. And there is pushback because when you have private companies who are the arbitrators in collecting this data, it also leaves consumers wondering about what recourse there is, what potential opportunities there are if they want their data removed. Takara, it's great to have you on today. Thank you for coming on the show. 
Thank you for having me. All right, that's Takara Small. She's a technology writer and blogger on facial recognition software at Live Concert. If you think back to the last federal election and the provincial election before that, one of the big issues was affordability for people. And it's not surprising because with the cost of living, it just seems to go up, up, up all the time. It just seems like your take-home pay, your salary, your wages don't seem to keep pace. So for a lot of the people that I talk to, they will say at the end of the month, it just keeps getting tighter with the amount of wriggle room that you have in your own personal finances after you pay the the bills for the month. Check out these numbers. The new consumer debt index just out. It says in British Columbia, households have an average of $601 in wriggle room left in their budget at the end of the month. So this is after all the bills are paid, $600 left over. You know what? I think for a lot of people, they probably got less than that. That's the way it feels to me. That's reflected in this survey as well. It says nearly half of British Columbians polled say they are left with less than 200 bucks at the end of the month. About a quarter say they don't have any money left at all to cover all the bills and obligations that they have to meet. It's getting tougher for a lot of people as they deal with this month to month. Let's talk to my guest about this now, Lana Gilbertson, a licensed insolvency trustee with the MNP company based in Vancouver. Lana, thanks very much for coming on. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. These are, this is an interesting survey. What is the Consumer Debt Index, by the way? What is that? So the Consumer Debt Index, the MNP Consumer Debt Index, measures Canadians' attitudes towards their consumer debt and gauges their ability to pay bills, endure unexpected expenses, and absorb interest rate fluctuations. Uh, And so this is something that we do in conjunction with Ipsos Read. It's updated quarterly, and we've been doing this since uh, the spring of 2016, so we have a lot of data under our belts. Okay, $601, the average amount left over, according to this new survey. Is that number going up or down? What do the trend lines say there? It's going down. So it is at its lowest point since tracking began in February 2016, and it's down $129 since June. So it, it is going down. People have left money less left over. They got less money in their pocket at the end of the month now. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not surprised at all. I mean, you just hear this from people a lot, that it's just getting tougher to meet, make ends meet. Why is that happening? Are just the cost of living going up too high? That is definitely part of it. Yeah. Um, there's, there's no question that the cost of living is uh, it's at an all-time high right now. Um, I think, too, that uh, what's happening, um, at least I'm going to say in my professional experience as a trustee, what I see in my daily practice is that you know, people are not preparing for you know, more long-game items like um, you know, annual or unexpected expenses. People are just not as prepared as they used to be. Um, they're not putting money away. And so what's happening is they're turning to credit cards and other forms of debt. And this is also eating up 
a portion of their disposable income increasingly. Yeah, I mean, if you have something that kind of blindsides you in your life, right? Like if you have, I don't know, an, unforese- an unforeseen death in your family of maybe a breadwinner in your home or something, or, or a marriage breaks up or something, or some unexpected expense, are those the type of things that can sort of throw a curveball at people? Definitely. I mean, often this is the straw that breaks the camel's back, as the saying goes. I mean, you know, a lot of people that find themselves facing an insolvency proceeding like a bankruptcy, I mean, it has it is the result of, you know, some sudden event that uh, just tips them over the edge. All right. I'm speaking to Lana Gilbertson. She's an insolvency trustee with MNP in Vancouver. Do you find that this is particularly an acute problem in a, in a city like Vancouver with such a high cost of living. Like maybe people find it easier to to cope if they're living outside the city, maybe of lower cost of living for something like housing. You know, I I'm not sure that I that I find that to be the case. Um, I, I I think that you know British Columbians, regardless of of where they're living, the cost of living it's high and it's all relative, right? I mean. You know, uh, you know, rents have, you know, skyrocketed outside of, of Metro Vancouver as well. And I, I think that this is a problem um, that that most British Columbians are facing together. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I would say it's, it's universal. And it's also, as we know, you know, we track data nationally and within uh, each of the regions. And it's, it's, you know, everyone in Canada is sort of feeling this way very, very, uh, you know, maxed out, if you will, and, uh, you know, and, and struggling to, to make ends meet. Yeah. How does BC compare against the rest of the country? You know, not, not that different. I think the result for Canada, I, I may not have this number quite exact, but I believe, you know, Canadians on average have about $579 left. So there's, you know, British Columbians are slightly better, but we're talking dollars, Right. So uh, I think everyone is really sort of feel, it, feeling in the same place, which is that generally life is unaffordable right now. Okay, is there, is there any portion of the population? Is there any significant percentage of people out there who are feeling like, well, actually, I'm doing okay. Maybe I'm feeling better off than I was yeah. a year ago. Definitely. Well, this this is what's interesting about the survey is that while you have sort of these headline results, right? British Columbians have less money at the end of the month. Half are concerned about their ability to pay their debts. You know, there was an aspect of the survey that actually showed that British Columbians were feeling more positive about their personal financial situation. So just some of that data, I can share with you, three in 10 say that their debt situation is better than it was a year ago. Um, Hmm. Around the same number, so roughly three in 10 say that it is better than five years ago. Um, In addition to being optimistic about the present, an even greater proportion feel more positive about the future. And that, you know, that shows, shows us four in 10 are expecting that their debt situation a year from now will be better. Half believe it will be better five years from now. So, so generally there is sort of uh, some positive sentiment uh, among British Columbians. Um, And, and, you know, and, and, you know, that's, that's really great, I think, you know, uh, but at the same time, again, I'm going to just refer back to my daily practice. I find that sometimes that positivity uh, may not be necessarily accurate uh, or realistic, and sometimes it prevents people from taking earlier action to address what is probably a more ser- serious situation than they realize. Yeah, maybe people are feeling a maybe 
I don't know, like a false sense of comfort or security, or maybe we were just getting used to rolling with the punches that we're getting more accustomed to kind of living month to month and people are just kind of getting used to it perhaps. But I don't know. I mean, if you are really struggling or just barely making the bills month to month, what happens if, if something unexpected goes wrong? Like in your, in your practice, when you're with your clients, I mean, do people come to you and they're in a desperate situation and what kind of advice do you give them? Mm -hmm. Most people that come to see me, you know, the vast majority of them really do need my help. Um, I would like to say that I, that I sit down with most uh, folks and say, oh, guess what? You know, your situation is better than you realize. You don't need me. I do say that from time to time, but it's not nearly enough, which just tells yeah. me that people have waited too long uh, to come in and see me. But, you know, the, the advice that I give them is I, I just give them the cold, hard facts, right? And, um, you know, typically people, although it's hard to, to talk to someone about what, you know, you've what is a serious financial situation? Finances are still a bit of a taboo topic for people, I think. But, you know, I, by the time they come to see me, usually they've dealt with some of the emotional stuff. So they're kind of there, ready to talk. Um, and, and often it's simply a relief to be able to, to talk about it freely with someone who isn't judging them and who is able to give them some education and information about what the options are. I mean, right. you know, bankruptcy is just one of the solutions that exist, but it's, it's not... It's not, uh, it's not uh, the most common thing that, that we help people with. There are alternatives. Um, but, uh, yeah, we do, you know, my job is to simply listen, uh, to, hear, to hear people out because they need to talk about it, and, and to, to go through all of the possible options that exist. And, and most people leave feeling quite relieved, again, to get it off their chest, but also to have some information that they didn't have, yes. uh, to know that there is a way. There's a way out. Is credit card debt one of the big problems? Like if people racked up some of those high interest rate debts? Definitely. Definitely. I see a lot of credit card debt. Yeah. Um, I also see, you know, lines of credit um, and uh, I see unpaid income taxes, student loans, um, all kinds of things. But definitely credit cards are usually in, in most people's uh, basket of debt, if you will. Okay, some tough numbers out there, but maybe a wake-up call to remind people to, you know, watch your pennies and uh, take the steps you need to you t- need to take before things get worse. Lana, thanks a lot for coming on. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. That's Lana Gilbertson. She's a licensed insolvency trustee. She's with MNP. Let's talk about the potential for a Metro Vancouver transit strike. The bus drivers. Represented by the Unifor Union, have given 72-hour strike notice. That means they could, stress could, walk off the job this Friday. Let's check in with BC's Minister of Labor now, Harry Baines. Minister, thank you very much for coming in. Hey, thank you, Michael, for having me. Okay, what are your thoughts on this on this situation? If you did have a strike, a full-blown transit strike, obviously in Metro Vancouver would inconvenience a whole bunch of people. What are your thoughts uh, on well, this today? Well, obviously, uh, everyone is concerned because uh, uh, in Lower Mainland especially, um, a vast majority of, uh, of people uh, depend on, on public transportation, buses, the SkyTrain, to go to work, to do their businesses uh, uh, as the police. 
right now, what the situation is that the union has given them 72-hour notice, uh, uh, which means intention to go on strike if there is no collective agreement by that time. Now, that doesn't mean that they could go on strike uh, after 72 hours. I have heard uh, the, the leader of the union, uh, Gavin McGarrigal, said they have no intention of having a, a full-scale shutdown at this particular Yet. time. So, yeah, so, right. I mean, so. I mean, they could go off the job on Friday, though, right? It's a but normal, but it's not. They're not. You know, it doesn't mean they're going to go. They're not going to strike for sure. Right. 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 Yeah. So, so th- this is a seventy-two hour notice is required under the labor code, and that's yeah. what they've done. And they could continue to go. Uh, uh, you know, do their bargaining as they should. And I encourage them all. And if they need any assistance from the labor board, uh, we will be pleased to help them through mediation or whatever other help that they need. But my, uh, you know, my my expectation is that they continue to 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 talk get their issues resolved so that uh, there's no inconvenience to no one out there. And I understand that the workers need to have their issues addressed. I understand the employer need to have their issues addressed as well. But there is a public in, 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 in the middle of all of this. Yeah. So I think my interest is to make sure that the workers are treated fairly, but at the same time that the public uh, uh, get the services that they need to get to work, uh, to send the kids to school, or do all of their other uh, daily chores. Okay, what options do you have as as the minister of labor? You just you just stand back and let this let the, the bargaining take its take its course, or do you have an option to potentially step in? Well, I think the last thing anybody could do uh, in a free collective bargaining, it, even it give a hint that there's a third party inter, 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 interference or intervention. I will not do that. I will encourage them that you go out there and negotiate, and keep in mind there's a public that you serve. And they should yeah. be keep. They should keep. Uh, you know. You know. Keep. Keep. But that in mind. And and uh, and if you need time, just get in there and then get the uh, the bargaining done uh, as as they should be. What about a mediator, a cooling off period, arbitration? Are are those options for you? All those options are there, but I, yeah. like I said, you know, uh, I don't want to give them any hint that there's any intervention coming from the government or anybody else. Right. It's their responsibility to their members. It's their responsibility to public uh, to make sure that the service is not interrupted and they should uh, get back to the bargaining table if they're not there right now and uh, get their issues resolved so that um, we would have uh, a good service back in again. It's been a long time since we had a, a transit strike in Metro Vancouver. The last one was in 2001. Do you remember that event? Like, I remember covering it at the time, and it was the Liberal government in power. It dragged on for four months, and it was it was pretty brutal for people. It, it, it was, and I think uh, at that time, if I recall uh, somewhat, uh, you know, the union uh, used different tactics without shutting the whole thing down. They were, I remember if you have a stickers on, they had unstrike and they, they would not wear a uniform, but they can, you know, kept the service on. So, I mean, it, it's, it's all the options available to the union. They could do whatever they want. But, yeah. but my uh, message to both sides is that there's a public that you must be uh, uh, keep in mind when you are making those decisions. Uh, whether this Friday or any day after that, get the collective agreement negotiated so that the workers get their paychecks and the public get the service that they deserve. Speaking to Labor Minister Harry Baines about a potential transit strike in Metro Vancouver, one of the things I re- remember going back to 2001 for your for your thoughts was that I felt that that very long strike back then disproportionately hurt a lot of vulnerable people. You know, it was like poor people who don't have a car. Uh, disabled people, senior citizens, you know, homeless people trying to get to a food bank. I mean, you name it. Like if you had a car, you were okay. And, and in fact, in some ways, 
you're even better off because there was no buses on the street and the traffic congestion was not as bad. So if you had a car, that, that was fine. But if you relied on that system, that was a drag for that to go on for four months. I mean, is that, do you have a concern there that there are, you know, vulnerable people who rely on the transit system? Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, you know, who wouldn't? Uh, I right. think, uh, the union, I'm sure, is looking at that. Uh, and uh, that's why I, I'm stressing the point that get to the bargaining table, get your issues resolved. If you need support from me, if you need uh, help from the labor, labor board, let us know. We'll help you. But the bottom line is that the public, uh, interest should be kept in mind. And uh, at the same time, I think the workers deserve to, to you know, continue uh, of their paychecks because they have a families to feed. And, I, you know, Michael, one thing that I know being with the unions all my life uh, and being a worker, you know, most of my life, last thing a worker wants to do is go on strike. And I know that because I was there. And I think that's exactly what these workers are feeling right now. They don't want to go on strike. They want to have a negotiated settlement. And I'm, I'm encouraging both sides to get to the table and uh, get the, uh, the agreement done. Okay, coming up at the top of the next hour, I'm going to be speaking to one of your critics there on the other side of the house, Peter Millibar, uh, liberal MLA and a critic who's, I'm sure he's going to come on here. In fact, I've already been corresponding with the liberals this morning saying like, oh, look at this labor unrest under this NDP government. Here we have a potential transit strike. We already have this the school shutdown in, in Saanich outside of, outside of Victoria here with support workers on strike. What are your thoughts on that, that here we're having these problems under an NDP government? Or do, or do you think they should be have any right to complain at all? Uh, you know, BC Liberals are the last uh, group of people that should be talking about workers and workers' rights and uh, how a labor relations should be built in, 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 in this province. They have a record of ripping up collective agreements of, uh, of union workers. They have a record of actually eliminating injured workers' rights at the WCB and gutting the employment standard branch. Uh, they cut half of the offices and half of the, uh, the, the, the staff at the employment standard branch so left all the vulnerable workers on their own. And uh, so we actually care about workers. We care and we value the work that they do. At the same time, we are uh, putting a you know, labor environment where we are helping both employer and, and the union side to get to the table, help you where you need us, and, and get the collective agreement done. And because this is a normal uh, way of a, a democratic system of a pre-collective bargaining, and we yeah. should allow it to uh, uh, work it through, and I'm sure there will be a collective agreement oh. sooner bef- before, before there's a re- Disruption. Okay, well, I hope you're right, because there's a lot of people who rely, obviously, on this system. Just my last question for you, as we t- we reminisced earlier about the previous strike back in 2001, and I recall writing columns at that time saying that, man, this thing just went on way too long. I mean, that went on for four months, and a lot of people, a lot of people were hurt by it. What is your kind of tolerance level here for, for uh, a strike? I mean, would you be willing to tolerate an extended strike would you have would you be willing to say hands off on this thing for you know months on end like the liberals did way back then i will not speculate uh, anything at this point and uh, and there's another day and and, and uh, i i i know that both parties are mature when it comes to collective bargaining yeah. and they understand their responsibilities and duty to people that they serve and uh, so i'm encouraging them to get back to the table and get those issues resolved so that the public is not inconvenienced 
Minister, thank you for coming in. Hey, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. That is Harry Baines. He's BC's Minister of Labor. Busy day at the BC Legislature. Let's check in now with Keith Baldry, Legislative Bureau Chief Global TV. Keith, thanks for coming in. Uh, good to be here, Smitty. Let's talk first of all about a potential Metro Vancouver mm-hmm. bus strike this Friday. I just talked to Harry Baines, the Labor Minister, who's and he also said up in the hallway a short time ago that no intervention from the government, at least for now, that's not a surprise. No surprise. And Harry Baines was pretty clear in the in the scrum he had with press gallery reporters. No government intervention is being contemplated, but. We're just at the beginning of something that could get really out of hand. Uh, I don't think the government's going to do much if it's just work to rule, uh, some uh, some inconvenience to the public. If there's a full-fledged walkout, then you would expect, I would expect, because we've seen it happen in the past where a government, and an NDP government did it as well in the 90s, would step in and legislate an end to the dispute. I, I remember, again, we're a long way from that. I remember when the, uh, Gordon Campbell stepped in in 2001, mm-hmm. and that's, that thing dragged on for four months, and I thought, I thought that we waited too long because a lot of people were getting inconvenienced. Yeah, that that one was uh, getting on the public's nerves. I think uh, this one. I mean, anytime there's a transit walkout, uh, the public is uh, doesn't like it, and that uh, puts enormous political pressure on a government to step in. But again, we're at the very beginning of what could be a long drawn out process. Do you think there's been some talk today about? Should the government make transit an essential service and ban strikes by bus drivers? I mean, that's not going to happen either. I mean, Cer- even the liberals didn't do that. No, certainly under an NDP government, it's just not going to contemplate something like that. Uh, it's going to be interesting. Uh, someone pointed out to me uh, uh, that uh, the Winnipeg, there's a w- similar work uh, situation in Winnipeg, and the and the drivers there just stopped collecting fares. Yeah, which yeah, would yeah, be yeah, a, yeah, an interesting yeah. technique, if that an uh, interesting pressure point to put on. Uh, the company here, if they were to suddenly end the revenue stream, that would also get the government's attention. Free bus rides? Yeah. Maybe the public would say, hey, just keep hey. stay on strike forever. It's still finding it impossible to get on the B line, though. Be yeah, more right. Crowded. Yeah, even more crowded, exactly. Let me, uh, let me ask you quickly about ICBC and the dumpster fire going mm-hmm. on over there because it's been interesting last couple of days with the release of ICBC's financial statements. No surprise showing massive two year losses there of over $2 billion. There had been a lot of talk by David Eby that this is the year they were going to turn the corner and they were going to put this dumpster fire out. ICBC gets back in the black. I'm starting to think now that's not going to happen, especially well, after EB lost that court case. And who knows, he might win, he might lose some other court cases too. Yeah, I remember being in the budget lockup back in February when you and I and others were very skeptical with officials saying, really, you're going to go from a bi- losing more than a billion dollars in one year to suddenly only losing 50 million and then turning a profit the next year. And we were told, yep, we've got the things in place. It's all going to work. Well, they're already lost a big one. And that was uh, the limiting the number of expert witnesses that could be in some of these cases. Right. They lost in court on that one unconstitutional and it remains to be seen whether the win on their their cap of uh, payments for soft uh, tissue injuries as well as their move to try to get more things out of court and into a civil uh, tribunal process and yeah because uh, the lawyers are suing them over those two as well if they lose those two cases and can't win on appeal that basically is a billion dollars between the three 400 million is the price tag attributed to losing the witness uh, uh, court case I'd still trying to get a, a handle and an answer from finance when is with that 400 million dollars be booked? Would it be in, yeah. in the current fiscal year? Uh, would it be spread over a number of years? But that's a pretty big number for the budget to absorb. Yeah, you know what? David Eby, you said yesterday if he loses these other court cases after he's already lost once, let's say he strikes out three times, he his word for that was catastrophic. Yeah. He said that'd be catastrophic for ICBC's budget. And you know what? 
it'd be curtains for this NDP government's budget surplus too. I mean, that that probably unbalances the provincial budget as well. Yeah, the surplus that was updated in the last quarter is uh, less than three hundred million now. So yeah. it's teetering on the edge, and the economy is starting to go down. As uh, Carol James has, has said, the economic forecasts have been downgraded. You, you got to figure they're worried about uh, the more than billion dollars they expected to take from the forest industry this year, and the forest industry is in crisis with th- thousands of people out of work. You got to figure that revenue number is going to be changed. So a lot of numbers are going south for the NDP right now, and ICBC might be one of the biggest. You know, I, what I detect here is this government softening the public up right now for that budget going into the red. Mm-hmm. And they're already trying to pin everything on the personal injury lawyers. I mean, they're, the, the lawyers are mad as hell at them, and the, the government keeps heaping the, heaping the blame on these lawyers. And also going after the liberals saying, hey... This ICBC dumpster fire, you guys started the fire when you were in power mm-hmm. and you guys are responsible. You can already see how they're trying to apportion that political blame on somebody else. And to me, as I'm watching, I'm going, oh, man, this budget's going off the rails here and they're already looking to blame somebody else. What are your thoughts? There? Yeah, well, they're trying to uh, shift as much of the ICBC blame onto the liberals as they can. Yeah. And they've got a lot of stuff to be able to sh- shift towards it. There's a lot. There's a track record there that uh, David Eby was very funny last week in the, in the question period. He sort of. Uh, jokingly said, finally, you're asking me a question on ICBC. Well, 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 because he's got a lot of ammunition he can throw back at the Liberals saying, this is what happened on your watch. And he's not done yet. He, I'm sure he's got more to throw at them as well. But uh, again, it's, a, it's a, a race to the finish here between these two parties. Who will the public attach most of the blame on ICBC to come the fall of 2021? Will it still be the BC Liberals or will that be a distant memory replaced by the current administration, the NDP? Because your rates are going to go up for most people uh, over the next two years on the NDP's watch, not the Liberals. Yeah, because I'm not sure people care too much if the balance gets unbudget uh, or unbalanced. Well, look at Justin Trudeau. Uh, well, I'm just thinking the same thing. Like Trudeau just went in and said, yeah, yeah, I remember I promised to balance the budget this year. Well, guess what? I'm racking up massive multi-billion dollar deficits as well. Nobody really seemed to care that much about the it, the budget. It, it being didn't seem unbalanced. to be didn't seem to be an issue in the federal election. Yeah. Uh, we covered that a lot, and that really didn't come up. Other issues came to the fore, and perhaps the NDP will roll the dice here and hope it's not a matter a big issue with the voters here. I think they have to be more concerned with the bond rating services. If they lose their their bond rating, uh, then the cost of borrowing starts to go up significantly, and that becomes a serious problem where a deficit. But it's even harder to be eradicated. But I think this ICBC thing is a real big problem for this government now mm-hmm. because I think there were some high hopes that maybe they would be able to erase these losses. And in fact, in the first quarter of the current fiscal year, it they were confident that they were going to get mm-hmm. back in the black here. Now, uh, it looks like, especially if they lose these court cases, those plans are off the rails. And I think this get, and and the big one I think for people is if your ICBC bill starts to go up dramatically, that's going to really tick people off. Well, yeah, and David Eby argues that most people, something like sixty percent, will see their insurance go down. Forty percent will see it go up. The people who are watching it go up are young drivers or drivers with little experience are getting. And we've NW has had lots of people on uh, tales of uh, woe of five thousand dollar insurance uh, premiums. Uh, so those uh, my point there politically. If a millennial's insurance, 22-year-old driver's insurance goes up to $5,000 and they need that car to drive around, well, guess what? Mom and dad will be the ones who step in and pay that bill, as so, as happens for so many millennials. And those are people who vote. And that's where the, I think the NDP has to be a little concerned that it's not just young drivers they may be ticking off here. It's their parents. Thanks for coming in. All right. That's Keith Baldry, Legislative Bureau Chief for Global BC, with his take on the day's events. I think that that uh, dumpster fire at ICBC is just going to keep 
on burning. Let's talk again about the one of the big stories we're covering on the show today, and that's the potential for a Metro Vancouver transit strike this Friday. Unifor, the big union that represents Metro bus drivers, have issued 72-hour strike notice. They could walk off the job this Friday. Earlier on the show, I spoke to B.C. Labor Minister Harry Baines. He said no plans for the government to intervene here. He wants uh, collective bargaining to take its course. Are you ready for a bus strike this Friday? Let's check in with the opposition now. Peter Millibar, BC Liberal MLA for Kamloops, North Thompson. Thanks a lot for coming into the studio. Absolutely. Always a pleasure. Let's talk nice and closer, Peter. Okay. So let me ask you about um, a bus strike here in Metro Vancouver. Your thoughts. Should the government be stepping in here? Well, the government, I think, should be providing a bit of direction to the traveling public what to expect. Um, You know, it would be great if there were some other options for people to get around. I guess they could always uh, phone for an Uber and a Lyft, but uh, I I don't think that's on the cards anytime (laughs) soon. So that that option's out for commuters. Uh, But there's huge ramifications for an area like Metro uh, if this indeed happens. And I think uh, Minister Trevena, the Premier, others need to come up with, with some statements and some understanding on what what is going to happen for these people? It's not just about students getting to their classes. Um, it's, you know, we're hearing from people about her worries about handy dart service to get to medical appointments. But what about all the medical staff at those appointments that take yeah. transit to get in and out of work? What will happen to uh, those types of services? You may finally make it to your, your clinic for your appointment or your test and find out the staff weren't able to make it into work. So uh, very serious ramifications here that, that requires some action by the government to, uh, to try to make sure that these sides are still talking, uh, not going out on strike. And uh, it does make one question, if Unifor is not hoping that the government will come in and try to bail out uh, or add more money to TransLink when they previously have not funded operations. Okay, this is a, this is a, a government that is pretty much lockstep with the union movement. I mean, they're constitutionally aligned, the NDP and the labor movement. Unifor has given a lot of money to the NDP over the years. Do you detect that maybe some of these unions figure like we got a friendly government in power here so we can kind of push the envelope and get what we want at the bargaining table here? Well, I don't think it's just uh, they think they have a friendly government. I think they think they have a government that they can tell what to do. And it's time for the premier and his ministers. Uh, we've, we hear this on file after file where the premier says it's not my responsibility. Um, you know, well, the, the ministers take their lead from the premier. If they're hearing the premier say it's not my responsibility, we start hearing that back from uh, the ministers as well. We've heard uh, Minister Fleming today saying it's not his responsibility to get in the middle of uh, of the what's going on in the Saanich School District. Yeah, there's a strike there underway right now. The Saanich schools are outside of Victoria are shut down. Exactly. We're yeah. hearing Minister Baines, it's not my responsibility. I'm sure Minister Trevena will say the same thing. Um, but they've had no problem interfering and taking over a $1.4 billion Patello Bridge off the hands of TransLink without TransLink even asking for that. So, of course, Unifor is probably thinking, well, well, we'll be able to pressure the government to give us whatever we want. Um, so they, they need to decide whether or not they actually are responsible for anything uh, in their operation of the province of British Columbia um, or not. Okay, you mentioned uh, ride hailing, which we still don't have. I mean, the government has said that we will get ride hailing services uh, before Christmas, maybe late November was one estimate I heard this morning that maybe we'll see some ride hailing services. I'm starting to wonder if maybe this union realizes that we still don't have these ride hailing services and they could exert even more pressure by striking now uh, before those services are available. 
Your thoughts? Absolutely. And, and, and I'm not confident, I don't think anyone's confident that we're actually going to see any meaningful uh, ride hailing options for the traveling public. Um, we're hearing that uh, there's very few uh, existing Class 4 licenses looking to transfer over. Um, those are probably coming at the expense of the cab companies. So if you're just taking a driver and putting a different uh, company logo on the car they're driving, you've added no capacity for the traveling public. Um, the reality is uh, this government has been uh, willfully blind to the realities of what you need to have to have meaningful ride hailing happening, not just in Metro, but in, in all of British Columbia, uh, certainly in Kamloops and in, in Prince George, Fort St. John, people want it as well. And uh, and we need to be taking steps to try to make this happen. Uh, a transit strike uh, just highlights even more why we need these other options, modern options for the traveling public to be able to access uh, if and when they need uh, to get around in certain uh, urban centers. Okay, I was speaking to Liberal MLA Peter Millobar. I would be remiss, though, to remind you that you guys were in power for a long time. You had years to deliver these services to the people of Metro Vancouver and the rest of the province as well, and you guys didn't didn't deliver the goods either. No, and, and I've made no bones about this. You and I have chatted about this once or twice on your show. And, yeah. and uh, the reality was, was there uh, was there hiccups uh, with the, the disruptive technology that was Uber and Lyfts of the world? Absolutely. And we saw changes needed to be made in jurisdictions when it was uh, when you were an early adopter of it. Uh, but I, I think over the last seven years from inception to now, uh, everyone got to a place where we realized what was working, what didn't work, and, and let's get on with it. And, and what we have seen in the last two and a half years though, um, has been a delay, has been an obvious attempt to try to restrict the numbers uh, of people that could actually operate within the system, and uh, that is no benefit to the traveling public, and I think it'll be magnified uh, if and when uh, the strike happens. I certainly hope the strike doesn't happen. I don't think anyone ever wants to see the traveling public and people trying to get around for work and appointments uh, impacted. Uh, but if it does come to pass, um, you know, one major option for people to get around has not been uh, initiated by this government over the last two and a half years. Okay, let me go back to this potential bus driver's strike that could happen this Friday. Uh, the Labour Minister earlier in the show today reminded me that even when a union issues 72-hour strike notice, that does not necessarily mean they will definitely go on strike. It just means they would be in a legal strike position on Friday. And... They might not even go on a full-blown strike. They could have other sort of job action, of withdrawal of services, an overtime ban, or someone said maybe they should not collect fares. There are other things they can do to put pressure on an employer. But what do you think, like at this early stage in a dispute, before they've even gone out, you're not seriously suggesting the labor minister should be stepping in now. I mean, you've got to let them give it a, give it a chance. I mean, they're still talking. I mean, they're negotiating later this week. So, I mean, what, what options does the, this government have right now? Well, I think this uh, government has options in terms of sending a, a clear signal to the traveling public um, what they can expect uh, from their government in terms of, um, uh, of action moving forward. Um, there is only 72 hours and less now if they do go out on the, the Friday. Uh, let's let's not kid ourselves. There's obviously clear channels of communication in the background between the government and unions like Unifor. Um, there are, there's obviously a little more knowledge and understanding on the government side of what's going on. Uh, um, internally, where some of the sticking points are, uh, but more importantly, uh, what is the plan on the government's uh, side of the house to deal with uh, this disruption, um, and how long would they be prepared to let uh, the public okay. uh, sit and wait and try to figure out how to get around uh, the lower mainland? Okay, Labor Minister Harry Baines did tell me he's encouraging both sides to sit down and, and get a deal. Uh, do you think that there we're seeing more labor unrest? 
under this government. We've, I mean, we got a threatened bus strike. As you mentioned, the schools are shut down in suburban Victoria here in Saanich with a support workers strike. We've seen Vancouver hotel workers on strike. What, what are your thoughts there? I mean, do you, do you detect that there's more labor militancy going on under with an NDP government power? Your thoughts? Well, there definitely seems to be. I, I can't remember. I, I grew up in the hotel industry, uh, so I was always uh, aware of when hotel strikes would be happening around the province. Um, and, uh, and there hasn't been any significant uh, uh, impacts like that for quite some time. Um, you know, the the support workers in Saanich. Um, now we have Unifor with um, with BC tra- or, or Translink down in the Metro Vancouver. Um, it does lend one to start to think that um, you know because of of the union support in the past of uh, Premier Horgan and this government that uh, the expectation is that the government will be able to try to put pressure uh, to get uh, results and to, and to get a better deal uh, for the unions. Now, whether or not that's actually uh, the case, and it's just a case of, of agreements uh, coming up, is another story. But perception, a lot of times, is reality. And and the fact that you have some of the, the larger uh, uh, union support uh, groups to this government, uh, kind of taking the first shots across the bow. Uh, certainly the teachers union is another case, but they, they, they seem to fight yeah. with any, any government. In it power. doesn't matter so, which government's okay. in power with so the we'll teachers union. So we'll keep that piece out of that equation. But yeah. uh, the reality is, uh, does that give anyone any confidence that it will be easier this time with the teachers moving forward if uh, these other unions seem to be uh, uh, bent on making sure that they press it to, to the 11th hour every time? Let, let me play some tape for you here. This is uh, Harry Baines the BC labor minister speaking to me earlier on the show. And I asked him about some of the liberal criticism of his handling of this file. Here's what he said. Uh, you know, BC liberals are the last uh, group of people that should be talking about workers and workers' rights and uh, how a labor relations should be built in, 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 in this province. They have a record of ripping up collective agreements of, uh, of union workers. They have a record of actually eliminating injured workers' rights at the WCB and gutting the employment standard branch. Uh, they cut half of the offices and half of the, uh, the, the, the staff at the employment standard branch so left all the vulnerable workers on their own. Okay, as the NDP Labor Minister in the, in the last hour, how do you respond to him? Well, I respond uh, to in the here and the now. Uh, Minister Baines has a, has a labor issue going on with TransLink, and the traveling public wants to know what Minister Baines is going to do to make sure that they can still get to work, uh, get to their medical appointments, that the, the staff, uh, that staff, all those types of things uh, can get to their work as well, that kids can get around to university. Uh, that's what the traveling public wants to know. That's what the, the vast majority of people in Metro Vancouver want to know of what actions this government is prepared to take to try to make sure that they can still get around in a time how, how long do you think a, a strike should be tolerated by a government? I mean, you guys, you got the last time there was a bus strike in Metro Vancouver was when you guys were in power. I realize it was before your time. It was a long time ago, 2001. But I remember covering it. Gordon Campbell was the premier. That went on for four months. Yeah, that went four on. months before he stepped in. Yeah, and that would have been right at the very front end, and and uh, one would suggest that uh, even then it was probably a testing of the waters by the unions with a new government coming in, a new ideology in government coming in. Um, it's not it's not an easy thing to solve by any means, uh, but I but I I firmly believe that there is a role uh, for the minister to play in this. Uh, you know, it'll be interesting to see if the if the strike does happen, uh, if people are really worried about Minister Baines's. Uh, 
speaking points there about, uh, you know, 16 years of this and 16 years of that. Uh, the reality is they want to know what's going to happen on day 16 yeah. of a strike. They want to know what's going to happen on, on day one of a strike. Um, and and uh, it's time for the government, to, if they ha- don't have plans, they need to be getting some in place to try to minimize as best as possible the impacts to people uh, in their daily lives. Thanks for coming in. Great, thanks so much. I appreciate that. That is Peter Millibar, Liberal MLA, Kamloops, North Thompson. Appreciate his time today. Today, it is indeed time for the CKNW Leadership Series. Today, the secret to great leadership. Often, the people we look up to are the people we see on screens and in front of cameras. We look up to these people as great leaders, but the cameras most often don't show all sides. Amir Ali now presents a cautionary tale and the secret to great leadership. Tiger Woods, one of the greatest, if not the greatest, golfer of all time, period. In your life have you seen anything like that? When I say his name, is golf the first thing you think about? Or is it the scandal that marred his career and almost ruined his entire legacy? Before everything transpired in his life, we look at Tiger as the leader of the golf world, the man at the top of the ladder, the person young golfers would look up to, He was a great leader, but it seemed to be only on the green. This is what separates the best from the rest. The ability to lead whether the cameras are watching you sink birdie after birdie or when they're turned off. This cautionary tale is better explained by Ryan Holiday. Ryan Holiday is a foremost thinker when it comes to bringing a modern perspective to ancient religion and philosophy. And his most recent book is called Stillness is the Key. Stillness. Ah, yes, the stillness. Have you found the stillness? You probably think you haven't, but it's just because you haven't harnessed it. But there are moments of stillness in your everyday life. Before I list some examples, let's hear what Ryan Holiday says stillness is. When you hear that word, I think we all have, it it evokes certain sort of memories or feelings of of moments when everything kind of slowed down, when you felt really good, sort of happiness creeps up, or or really kind of like elite performance comes into play. Like you you were able to do things you didn't know you were capable of doing. But then when I think about those moments, I'm, I'm sort of alarmed at how rare they are in my life. They kind of just happen accidentally. You're talking about yourself personally. Yeah, and, and I, I think people can relate to that. It's like we know those are the really special, important moments, but they don't happen often enough. And so the, sort of the intention of the book is, well, is there a way to live more intentionally? Is there a way to make sure those things are, are not just accidental? Can, can you actually sort of make room for stillness in your life? Are there habits or decisions or practices that, that will sort of cultivate that? So, you know, it's, you're not just leaving it to chance because I think it's so important. So sometimes you might have experienced stillness without even knowing it. When you hug a loved one or when you're running track or when you're driving a scenic route or going for a relaxing swim like Mr. Rogers used to do. Mr. Rogers clearly had the stillness. I end the program by saying, you've made this day a special day by just your being you. There's no person in the whole world like you. Michael Jordan, the greatest basketball player of all time, on the court. There's no one who embodies stillness better. And I've modeled my mental game after Jordan almost identically. Off the court, Michael was resentful, angry, impatient. 
Anger is another thing that great leaders must avoid. And the key to quelling anger is, yes, the stillness. Well, I don't know if it's possible to eliminate it completely. I just, I just think that it's sort of bad fuel. And I think we've gotten to a place politically where we think that it's going to get us where we want, but it's probably only making things worse. And I just came to a place where I realized, like, look, most of the things that are bad in the world are not done by other people on purpose, right? Oftentimes they think they're doing the right thing, in which case, you know, being mad at them is not going to make things better. And then there really are evil and awful people in the world. And those are precisely the people who are too dangerous to risk, you know, attacking emotionally. Like, it's the really serious situations that require sort of the calmest response. As far as anger goes, I'm not saying it's not powerful. I'm just saying that it's, it's very volatile. And so we end up using it because we think it's going to take us where we want to go, but can often blow up in our faces. Now we're merely scraping the surface, but the one constant when we look back in time at all great leaders, when they had in certain cases the weight of the world on their shoulders was stillness. For the CKNW Leadership Series, I'm Amir Ali.